0: On June 8th, Sky Pillsbury opened the latest edition of her newsletter, The Squeeze, with the header R.I.P. Gimlet. She continued, quote, I'm heartbroken over the news that Spotify has laid off another 200 podcast employees, though I'm not shocked. I am devoured Alex Bloomberg's startup when it first came out, which was about a year before I started podcasting. Then, I inhaled Reply All when it launched, and despite its later troubles, I was genuinely moved by its final episode. I lapped up Bloomberg's earnest and sometimes funny interviews with entrepreneurs on Without Fail – And I even had the privilege of interviewing Bloomberg during a course I taught at Creative Live. I followed Gimlet's acquisition by Spotify with interest and a healthy dose of skepticism. The bumpy ride that they've had since then was utterly predictable, though like Pillsbury, I find the news that Gimlet is no more, at least in any recognizable sense, quite upsetting. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. This short dispatch is about podcasting and the podcast industry, but really it's about why we shouldn't judge success or run companies using the logic of Wall Street.
1: I'm Alex Bloomberg, and for a long time I was a producer at the public radio show This American Life, and also the co-creator of a podcast called Planet Money, where for years I reported on business and the economy. It was a great gig until I decided to do something rash. I decided to take what I learned from reporting on other people's businesses and start my own business.
0: Despite my interest in Bloomberg's vision and Gimlet's rise to podcasting power, I have always wondered something that people asked Bloomberg multiple times in season one of Startup. Why go the venture capital route? Why not build out a studio organically? At the time, I was invested, pun intended, enough in the underdog story that I didn't think much about Bloomberg's non-answer.
1: Whatever shred of conviction I had about this process at the beginning is gone. I also learned something about how investors like Chris see the companies they might invest in. I came at her thinking I could build a nice, profitable business. But Chris isn't looking for profitable. He's looking for Twitter, something huge. Or if not Twitter, then at least a company he could sell to Twitter.
0: My vague recollection was that his answer was never very well thought out. I double-checked, but it seems there are no transcripts for startup. WTF, Gimlet. Even though i was rooting for bloomberg and his vision the impression i got was something along the lines of building a company seems like the thing to do there's a lot of money flowing around and i'd like to make podcasts with it i think this could be really big i mean honestly it was 2014 and he wasn't wrong Building a big company was the thing to do. There was a lot of money flowing around and funding things far less interesting than a major podcast studio. It could be really big. But none of those are very good reasons for taking millions of dollars of other people's money. But risk looks different depending
1: on who's assessing it. For investors like Micah Rosenblum, one risk to him investing in our company is moderate success. Let's say our company grows steadily, not exponentially. Not enough for us to sell the company for hundreds of millions of dollars to some massive media company like Disney or Yahoo. So success for me and Matt, a profitable growing company, is actually a risk for Micah. And by the same token, success to Micah, massive exponential growth, that actually feels risky to me, specifically to my family.
0: It's like Dr. Ian Malcolm said
1: yeah, yeah,
0: but your podcasters were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't start to think they should. Anyhow, as different waves of mergers, acquisitions, and layoffs have hit the big podcast studios, Legacy Media always asks, what does this mean for the podcasting industry? The assumption is that if the big studios can't make it, Maybe the whole of podcasting is doomed. New York Times reporter Reggie Ugu details the chilling climate of the podcast industry in a February article. He cites layoffs, Tightened ad budgets, and cancellation of big name deals like Spotify's contracts with Barack and Michelle Obama and Bruce Springsteen, and SiriusXM's deal with James Vanderbeek. And the article includes this telling quote The dumb money era is over, said Eric Newsom, a podcast strategist and co founder of the independent studio Magnificent Noise. People have been throwing money at things just to see if they could get in and scale up audience quickly. But now everyone's being a little bit more conservative. Now, Newsom actually gets the last word in the article, which is interesting. And he says that overall podcast audience growth is a sign of health in the industry and that the business side will sort itself out. But what is it going to take for the business side to sort itself out? It'll take a different playbook, and that happens to be one that's already been used successfully many times. A few months later, in a May article, Uguu profiles the podcast and multimedia studio Tenderfoot TV. This studio is growing, not shrinking. How? Well, the two founders still own the company outright, and the staff, which doubled in the last year, is still fewer than 20 employees. Similarly, Crooked Media, the studio behind Pod Save America, had been entirely self-funded and owned by its three founders from January 2017 until September 2022. It was then that Crooked finally took on a round of outside funding in an exquisite subtweet of conservative media from George Soros' Soros Fund Management. But the three original founders maintain a majority stake in the company, according to Variety. Now, these are huge and unusual success stories. But podcasting is full of small success stories, too. People make all kinds of shows and fund them in all sorts of ways without taking on the burdens of making corporate or shareholder overlords happy. From inside the world of podcasting, the consensus on podcasting's quote-unquote troubles seems to be that we're sorry to see shows we love end, sad to see our role models lose their jobs, and angry about how the whole thing often goes down. But we're also screaming into the void. We're still here. We'll always always be here. In the discourse around business and entrepreneurship, you get the impression that with bigger, you get the chance to do better. More money equals more opportunities for creativity. More staff translates to more experiments. More support leads to higher quality. And as all of that comes to fruition, the business will do well. It has to, right? But no, it doesn't have to. In fact, I would argue with the whole premise. Bigger can mean being strapped with must-hit metrics, dozens of other people's opinions, and the crushing responsibility of all the livelihoods you've tied to your shot at success. Bigger breeds conformity and homogeneity, not creativity and experimentation. I believe that podcasting is an industry that will be around long after the foreseeable future becomes the present. I believe that podcasts are, without a doubt, commercially viable cultural products. I believe that the best is yet to come in podcasting. I believe that studios can grow into sustainable and healthy businesses that pay their staffs well and do well by their founders. I just don't believe That the financials will ever make podcast studios compatible with the growth and profit expectations of the world of investment. You know what? I think that's a good thing. I was talking to a friend about my last piece, and they made the point that there is a particular kind of creator economy business that operates on a rationale of value extraction. They purport to create value through education, media, software. But value creation isn't the logic of the business. Instead, the business is making its play for a certain piece of the pie. A venture-backed company has to make the same play. Even before a revenue model is in place, there is the extraction of users or listeners from the wider market. Once enough users have been extracted, then the company can put an extractive revenue model in place. Founders and investors are rewarded based on the success of that model rather than whether what they've created is useful or desirable. The logic of extraction demands that business operations focus on squeezing money out of a project in any way it possibly can be squeezed out. It's not a logic constructed for values for quality or unique contribution. It's a logic that works on finding some small advantage and working it until it doesn't work anymore. Now, this isn't limited to podcasting, of course. This is the logic that has become the chief economic driver in the U.S. over the last 25 years. Scale or die. Maximize profit or go bankrupt. Hit your metrics or get laid off. It's obviously very bad for people, both founders and workers, although especially workers. But it's also bad for the economy as growth revolves around the financialization of more and more abstract products. And it's bad for businesses because executives have lost interest in their customers and in their products. I hope that the podcasting industry can continue to measure its success, not on the profit extracted, but on the quality of the product. This might seem obvious, but making a quality product should be and is financially sustainable, even if the bottom line doesn't make people on Wall Street swoon. I don't want to be Pollyanna about this, though. Creating a quality product and a sustainable company isn't a walk in the creative self-expression park. It takes a strong network, a willingness to do the business stuff, and the chops to make something worth listening to. It's not easy. But it is possible. I suppose at the end of the day, one of my motivators for talking about the absurdity of our economic and financial systems is that I believe business and work can be prosperous without adhering to the logic those systems run on. Just because a product doesn't scale doesn't mean it can't be sustainable or hell, even wildly profitable. Whether it's podcasting or writing or making videos, or any other culturally valuable pursuit, we can make it work without playing by their rules. Every episode of What Works is also published as an essay. Find the complete archive and subscribe to get new essays delivered straight to you at read.explorewhatworks.com. That's Read.exploreWhatWorks.com. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a boutique production agency for podcasters who are changing our assumptions about culture, leadership, and business. Today's episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. Marty Seefeld is our audio engineer. Sean McMullen is our executive producer. What Works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock people, and The Yellow House is located on the unceded land of the Kutunaha Nation.